Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For today's show, I'm still doing a lot of catch-up. There are still some Best Picture nominees that I have not reviewed for this show. I've seen them quite a while ago, but because I had my special shows, because I had other shows that had to cancel because of weather and other related issues, I'm getting to them right now. But, of course, I'm going to start the show off with the newest movies that are out in theaters right now. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Madam Web, which is in the Spider-Verse. Actually, specifically, it's not exactly in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's actually in Sony's Spider-Man Universe, of which there have been four films so far. There's been Venom from 2018. There's been Venom and Carnage from 2019. Excuse me, 2021. There has been Morpheus from 2022 and in 2024 we have Madam Web. And I've been hearing a lot of bad press about this movie going into it. And I do see a tendency of moviegoers, particularly male comic book fans getting ready to just trash a comic book based movie where the majority of the main cast is female. They seem to do that with the Marvels, which is not the best of the MCU movies, but I still thought it wasn't that bad. As a matter of fact, I thought it was pretty good in a lot of instances. So I went into Madam Web with an open mind. And Madam Web is probably going to be the most talked about film of the week, if not of the month, but that's not particularly a good thing in this case. So Madam Web, the titular character's real name is Cassandra Webb, And in this movie, she's played by Dakota Johnson in her first action movie role. And Cassandra Webb is a New York metropolis paramedic who begins to demonstrate signs of clairvoyance. Forced to challenge revelations about her former, she needs to safeguard three young women from a deadly adversary who wants them destroyed. So it sounds like a pretty good plot, but man... There are a lot of things in this movie that go terribly wrong, which is unfortunate because of Dakota Johnson, I have said before that I've liked Dakota Johnson in every movie in which I've seen her, except for the ones with the words Fifty Shades in the title. And even when I was reviewing the Fifty Shades movies way back when, when they were a hot commodity, and now they're considered garbage, whereas when they were first released, they were considered hot garbage, I was complimentary of Dakota Johnson's performance because I saw that she was trying. In this film, I don't exactly know if she was trying because it was either she wasn't trying or the director, S.J. Clarkson, needed to have more takes than she was ultimately given because... A lot of times, Dakota Johnson in this movie seemed very monotone. For example, there's a scene where she's in the subway, and she can clairvoyantly see these three girls who get on the subway get killed by the adversary in this movie, who is a villain by the name of Ezekiel Sims, who's played by Tahar Rahim. And Ezekiel Sims has the powers of of a a spider because he was bitten by a certain spider that had special powers that was found in South America somewhere. And there's a whole backstory where Cassandra Webb's mother, whose name is Constance Webb, is down there trying to find these spiders and researching them. But Ezekiel Sims goes with her and ultimately kills her while she's pregnant in order to get the spider. So he can also clairvoyantly see that these three girls, Julia Cornwall, played by Sidney Sweeney, Anya Corazon, played by Isabella Merced, and Maddie Franklin, played by Celeste O'Connor, are eventually going to kill him. So he wants to kill them before they kill him. So in the subway, getting back to Dakota Johnson's character, Cassandra Webb can clairvoyantly see these three women getting killed mercilessly by Ezekiel Sims. And Dakota Johnson gets up and tries to maneuver these three girls off of the subway. She says, 
she says basically like this, get up. This is, this is an emergency. Your lives are in danger. Get up. Get off the subway. Just like that. And I kind of feel like Dakota Johnson either wasn't into this role as much as she should have been, or maybe she was just not directed particularly well. And there are these and other plot holes and inconsistencies that don't work particularly well. For example, Cassandra Webb finds out that she is clairvoyant when she rescues a guy from falling off a New York bridge. His car is upside down. So she gets into the car, cuts his seatbelt loose, and he's able to get out of the car. But she goes a little bit too far into the car to the point where you would think that a paramedic who lives and works in New York City would know to get someone to pull the car back from the edge of the bridge before anyone else, especially paramedics, would be able to go in and help the victims inside. But then she goes a little too far in, the doors close, and the car falls off the bridge, and that's when she discovers that she has these clairvoyant powers, which leads me to think, did she get the clairvoyant powers from the radioactive spider, or did she get it from nearly drowning? And why was it that she was in the water and she discovered these powers all of a sudden. That didn't really make a lot of sense to me. It was very unclear what Cassandra Webb's powers were besides seeing the future. And there is a moment where Cassandra Webb goes back to South America. I think the country was Peru to rediscover where her mother died. And she discovers someone who's an ally who was there when her mother died, but evaded death from Ezekiel Sims. And he kind of shows her how her powers work, but then again, he doesn't. And probably one of the best scenes where a master is training a novice would be in Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. In that movie, there was practically half the movie dedicated to Yoda showing Luke Skywalker how to use the Force. And in this movie, he just kind the the guy just kind of says to Cassandra Webb, "You have these powers, and you can have your you you can use them if you believe." And that's really about it. There are some good actors in this film who actually act well with what they're given. Mike Epps isn't in this film very uh, long, but when he's in the film, he acts really well. Adam Scott actually actually plays Ben Parker. And also, I should note that this movie takes place in 2003 when Peter Parker hasn't been born yet. But we are introduced to Mary Parker, who is pregnant with a child she hasn't named yet, and she's played by Emma Roberts. And I actually liked Adam Scott here as Ben Parker, although there's one scene that's kind of pandering to the comic book crowd where he and his paramedic partner, Cassandra Webb are eating Chinese food and he opens a fortune cookie that has the fortune that reads something to the effect of when you take on great responsibility, you have great power. Now this is a throwback to the line that's repeated over and over again in the first Spider-Man film from 2002 that was directed by Sam Raimi with great power comes great responsibility. But if you really think about it, first of all, it's a cheap link to the original Spider-Man film, which still after 22 years is pretty great, and, and all the other superhero movies that come after it. But secondly, if you think about it, when you take on great responsibility, you have great power, does not mean the same thing as with great power comes great responsibility. So there are moments like this that are cheap here and there, and I could go into a number of the plot holes in this film. And at the end, Madam Webb gets my rating of a flunk out. With most flunk outs, I'm actually kind of angry that my time has been wasted. But with Madam Webb, I kind of feel like a good movie could have been there, but there were a lot of plot holes, a lot of inconsistencies. There are some actresses, or rather actors, I thought could have been good in this film, but almost seemed to kind of phone it in, like Dakota Johnson and Sidney Sweeney. And also, the three girls who could have taken on Spider-Man's powers, like it's implied earlier in this film... A, in this film, don't, 
I, I kind of felt like that could have come full circle, and that was a disappointment that they don't. And B, they are greatly underdeveloped, with a lot of their backstories are spoken by the characters rather than shown, which it should have been. So, Madam Web is one of those films that wasn't a flagrant disappointment to me when I first saw it, but as I was walking out of the theater and thinking about what should I rate this film, I began thinking about the various plot holes, the underacting, the really bad editing, and in the end, it doesn't make me angry, but I can't recommend Madam Web because it is a subpar superhero movie. It's not worse than Morpheus, in my opinion, but it's still pretty bad. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Bob Marley, One Love, which is a biography of, you guessed it, Bob Marley. I actually have a little bit of an issue with the movie being called Bob Marley, One Love. It could have just been called One Love. And when you see a black guy with dreadlocks on the poster, you could probably presume that that guy is Bob Marley, or is supposed to be. But the director of this film is a man by the name of Ronaldo Marcus Green, who has actually previously directed a number of films that are of note, including Monsters and Men from 2018, which I saw but don't quite remember all that well, and King Richard from 2021, which earned Will Smith an Oscar for Best Actor, which should have been Will Smith's crowning moment, and if Will Smith had not done something about 20 minutes before winning that Oscar, it probably would have been Will Smith's crowning moment, but that is another story for another time. So, Ronaldo Marcus Green knows how to direct biographies, and he knows how to direct somewhat unconventional biographies, which is why it's kind of disappointing that Bob Marley One Love is, in essence, a conventional musical biopic. It is the story of how reggae icon Bob Marley overcame adversity and the journey behind his revolutionary music. Or at least that's what the synopsis says. That's what it's supposed to be, but... And in the end, I do think that Kingsley Ben Adir, who plays Bob Marley, does a serviceable job. And there are also some other good supporting performances, including Lashana Lynch, who plays his wife, Rita Marley, and also James Norton, who plays a man who is actually still alive today and who brought Bob Marley onto the international scene. James Norton plays Chris Blackwell. And Chris Blackwell is a white British man, uh, who is largely responsible for making Bob Marley the international icon that he ultimately became. And the majority of this movie takes place in the late 70s, approximately from 1976 to 1979. And the disappointing part for me is that I like Bob Marley. Actually, I don't like Bob Marley's music. I love Bob, Marley, Bob, no, Bob Marley's music. And I know about what message he pervade from his music but what i really wanted to know that i wanted the movie to tell me or show me even better is bob marley's life before he was famous and maybe it would have been one of those rags to riches tale but on the one hand bob marley received a lot of recognition he may not have necessarily received a lot of fortune in addition to that fame during his lifetime but the movie does effectively tell you, show you, I should say, that Bob Marley during the last years of his life was immensely popular with people of many different backgrounds and many different countries. And that's demonstrated when he goes on a world tour in the late 70s and his wife Rita Marley goes with him. And by this time, he has actually established himself as not only an effective artist, but also as a family man, as Bob Marley, who only died when he was 36 years old. But by the time he got to that age, he fathered 12 children. And the some of the 
conflicts that Bob Marley faces in this movie are somewhat predictable fare. For example, there are other managers in his circle besides Chris Blackwell who actually kind of undermine him financially and Bob Marley finds out about it and and flips out. It's not like the Bob Marley's image that we know from having his face posted on certain Jamaican flags, but it probably is accurate. But from a musical biopic standard, it's somewhat predictable. And also some of the conflict that he has with Rita Marley, even though they both are on tour together, that has also been seen in other biopics before. What I really wanted to know, and this movie actually tells you rather than shows you, is how Bob Marley came to be, what his background was like. And you can presume, because he was black and because he was raised in Jamaica when it was still under British rule, that he probably grew up dirt poor. Unfortunately, in this movie, you have Rita Marley telling Bob Marley that she has been with him ever since he only owned one shirt. And that's a very powerful statement, but I wanted to actually see more of Bob Marley growing up. And unfortunately, the only part you see is a segment that's almost sort of silhouette that you see again and again where you see a child who is presumably Bob Marley running away from somebody on a horse while there are crops behind him, presumably sugarcane, that's on fire. But you don't really get a context of what Bob Marley is doing in the middle of that fire. Did he start the fire? Did he, you, you don't exactly know. And the movie doesn't tell you or really show you. And it also doesn't show you exactly what goes through Bob Marley's head when he's writing these songs. The movie is indeed rich with a lot of Bob Marley's music, including One Love, of course, you would expect that because that's the name of the movie, and other great songs he did like Three Little Birds and I Shot the Sheriff, and probably my favorite song by Bob Marley, No Woman, No Cry. And that's just kind of scratching the surface. And it shows him recording the songs in a studio, but it doesn't show him actually writing the songs and getting his sort of what's going through his head as he's writing the songs. And that's really unfortunate, but I do think that it is a good enough biopic. It's just not great, which is why I give Bob Marley One Love my rating of a checkout. I do think that Kingsley Ben-Adir and the director, Ronaldo Marcus Green, certainly have a love, respect, and appreciation for Bob Marley. I just kind of wish that the story of Bob Marley was told a bit less conventionally. And also, you might think that by by having me say that I wish they had started with Bob Marley's childhood from the very beginning, that might be conventional, and that's certainly true. But if it's showing his childhood so much that you can get a grasp for the influence behind many of the songs he wrote, including for the classic album Exodus, which, by the way, was chosen by Time magazine as the greatest album of the 20th century. Not just the greatest reggae album of the 20th century, the greatest album of the 20th century period. I think you should get a lot more insight into what Bob Marley was thinking when he was writing these songs. At least get a notion of some of his inspirations. But if you love Bob Marley's music, I don't think you'll be disappointed by this film. If you're looking for a musical biopic that's less conventional, you might be a little disappointed, but it's a conventional biopic that is on a solid foundation, but it could have been so much more. But still, I liked it. I just didn't love it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is American Fiction. Now, I have not reviewed this movie on my show yet, but I did see it before the ball dropped on December 31st, 2023. And I did list this 
as the second best film, in my opinion, of 2023. So usually I save my rating for the very end, but I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, I kind of ruined it for you here, but American fiction is a knockout and I still stand by the idea that this is one of the best films of the year. It's the second best in my opinion, and I am not alone. It's also been nominated for Best Picture in addition to four other Oscars, which are Best Actor in a Leading Role, Jeffrey Wright, probably the biggest surprise of the nominations here, Best Supporting Actor for Sterling K. Brown, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay for Cord Jefferson, and also... Best Achievement in Music Written for Motion Pictures, i.e. Best Original Score, by Laura Karpman. I don't know which of these awards is going to win, but I'm glad the Academy recognized this film because it certainly is not unconventional, but it's a film about underrepresented people who Hollywood has not always recognized in their films. Now, this is directed by Cord Jefferson, who is making his feature film directorial debut, and it's an amazing debut. He also wrote the screenplay, and he also uh, had previously written screenplays for a number of other miniseries, including uh, Watchmen from 2019, which is an amazing miniseries. In fact, as, as little TV as I watch, I was very impressed by Cord Jefferson's writing on Watchmen. Not only did he create really compelling characters, but he also took characters that Alan Moore had previously created and expanded upon them in really amazing ways that the 2009 Watchmen film did not do. He also previously wrote for The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, which was a show that for about two seasons followed The Daily Show. So Cord Jefferson has had a lot of experience writing, but this is his first time writing and directing, and he does an amazing job with this film, and the movie is about a college professor who is also a novelist, and by the way, I should also mention that this film is not an original screenplay, as is implied by the fact that I said it was best adapted screenplay. Cord Jefferson himself wrote the screenplay, but it's based on a book called Erasure, which was written in 2002 by Percival Everett. And Jeffrey Wright here plays a college professor and a novelist by the name of Thelonious Ellison. And because of his first name, his nickname is Monk, alluding to the jazz pianist Thelonious Monk. And he is fed up with the establishment profiting from black entertainment. And in his frustration, he uses a pen name to write a book that propels him into the heart of the hypocrisy and madness he claims to disdain. So getting into it more specifically, Thelonious Ellison is a highly intelligent African-American upper-class writer and professor who teaches at a college in Los Angeles. And he's written three novels when we're first introduced to him. And they receive academic praise, but like many other novels that receive academic praise, they don't get a lot of mainstream attention, and they don't sell very well. And there are publishers who actually have the audacity, and these publishers, by the way, are white, who call his, uh, who reject his latest manuscript for not being, and I quote, black enough. And... Eventually, he gets into trouble with his the school at which he teaches because of some confrontations he has with some of his Gen Z students, and he ultimately goes back to his hometown of Boston, primarily to reconnect with some of his family, including his doctor sister, Lisa Ellison, who's played by Tracy Ellis Ross, his brother, who's played by Sterling K. Brown, and also his mother, Agnes, who's played by Leslie Uggams. And while he's there, he also develops a romantic friendship, or rather a romantic relationship, with a woman by the name of Coraline, who's played by Erica Alexander, who some people might recognize as being one of the women on Living Single. I haven't seen her in a movie or TV show since Living Single, so it's, or at least not that I can remember, so it's great to see her on the big screen. But anyway, the movie is not just about his relationship with 
his family. It's also about his relationship with his publisher, Arthur, who's played by John Ortiz, and also Arthur's confusion as to why, why Thelonious would write a book that's basically a black exploitation novel. But he does. He names the book The Pathology, which is a, an incorrect way of saying the word pathology. And when he sends it out there, that's has it written with black stereo, the negative black stereotypes. Unfortunately, much to Thelonious's chagrin, white publishers eat it up. And he's trying every way to try to get them not to publish the book, but he ultimately finds that he has created a monster. So in a way, this movie is kind of like the producers in the sense that the he's trying to get something out there that's going to bomb just to make a point, but when it succeeds, it makes another point that is very much against what he believes. He kind of exposes hypocrisy even when these other people who are praising this book primarily white people don't see through the joke that's being played on them. And there's also another brief performance in this movie by Issa Rae, who plays another author by the name of Centara Golden, who is unlike Jeffrey Wright's character. She's young and she also puts out a book that is also arguably rife with negative black stereotypes that the white literary public embraces. And there are some very funny scenes that show these not very well-minded white people who think they're standing on a pedestal when they applaud this book. And in reality, the joke is on them. And it's very sharp satire, American fiction is. And I haven't read the book Erasure, upon which it's based, but now that I've seen the movie and the movie turned out the way it, it has... I'd love to read the book right now, but what's what's more is that Issa Rae's character is not just there to expose hypocrisy. There's actually a scene near the end where Jeffrey Wright's character and Issa Rae's character are having a very intelligent discussion about what it is to write a story to which people can identify and even love and what the definition of selling out actually is compared to writing something that's true and honest. And the dialogue that the two of them have is razor sharp, and I absolutely loved it. And it kind of made me look at myself and me actually reading some books, sure, but also I watch a lot of movies and I do watch a lot of films that take place in black communities to which I almost never venture in what is in essence the ghetto. And I don't try to say that I can relate to them. And I try not to get into how authentic the performances are, but there are plenty of other white critics and maybe even not crit, not critics, but consumers who may tell themselves these things. I try to sidestep this and American fiction is one of those films that makes, or one of those pieces of art, I should say, that makes me believe that I'm on the right track, or at least gives me hope that, that I'm on the right track, and also gives me some peace of mind to look at myself and realize what it is that I'm taking in and whether or not I should praise things that may not necessarily need praise or warrant praise. But American Fiction is a film that is very funny, like some satire is, but it makes you think like all great satire should. Jeffrey Wright is amazing in this film. I'm actually kind of surprised with the four supporting actresses in this film, the, the four main ones, Tracy Ellis Ross, Erica Alexander, Issa Rae, and Leslie Uggams, that none of them were nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but Sterling K. Brown actually was. I do think that Sterling K. Brown does turn in a great performance here, but I think the other four actresses here with what they're given, do a great job, especially since there's one character who's played by one of these four actresses, who I won't give away, who dies early on in the film. It's disappointing when she dies, but she does actually leave quite the mark in the little screen time that she has. And all four of these women certainly do an amazing job in their roles as well. 
So American Fiction, I said it was the second best film of the year. I don't take that back. It is amazing. And maybe the joke is on me sometimes, but with American Fiction, I kind of know from watching it that I'm a bit on the right track. But even if I'm not, it's still a great lesson learned. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Anatomy of a Fall, which is a French film that is directed by Justine Trier, who has been actually nominated for two Oscars just this year. She's been nominated for Best Achievement in Directing, i.e. Best Director, and also for Best Original Screenplay, which is very surprising because in a lot of ways, Anatomy of a Fall feels like it was based on a book. But unlike the other film that stars Sandra Huller, which is The Zone of Interest, Anatomy of a Fall was actually an original conception by Justine Triette, who not only directed the film but also co-wrote it with Arthur Harari. And the movie stars Sandra Huller as a woman who is not only a woman, but she's also a best-selling author whose work is world-renowned. But she is suspected of murder after her husband's death, and their visually challenged son faces a moral dilemma as the main witness in the murder trial of this woman's husband. Sandra Huller, by the way, plays Sandra Voiter, who is a an already established and very popular author, who is particularly popular in Europe because she writes in French. But she also has a husband who is who it's demonstrated through the trial in this movie, is struggling to find his own voice as an author. And this movie tells you well, it actually shows you at first that the husband, Samuel Molesky, is married and has a child and is with his family, but is also very lonely and depressed. And you can presume that this loneliness and depression is a mental illness because eventually, actually near the very beginning of the movie, he jumps out of a window and falls to his death in the family's isolated mountain chalet near Grenoble. And Grenoble, for those of you who don't know your French geography, is the prefecture and largest city of the Isere department in the Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes region of southeastern France. So in other words, it's near the French Alps. So because Samuel Molesky, who's played in this movie by Samuel Theus is dies when Sandra Voiter is at home and also their son Daniel is taking their dog out for a walk police immediately put Sandra Voiter on the suspects list and the trial that happens throughout the movie where Sandra Voiter is suspected of murdering her husband Samuel Molesky is an interesting case and I think that people who have been trained in law in France would be able to see this film for the compelling and accurate courtroom drama that it is. Maybe. But American viewers would see this film as interesting, but can almost immediately see what would not fly in an American court compared to a European or a French court. Now, America and France are both democracies, 
But our court system runs a lot differently than the court case in Anatomy of a Fall. For example, it's revealed in this film that the character Samuel Molesky actually recorded a number of the arguments he had with his wife. And these recordings are used as evidence in the trial. That would not fly in most American courts. Now, the rules of courts vary from state to state, but one thing I do know is that in most U.S. states, recordings, especially when one party is not aware that they're being recorded, are largely inadmissible in a court. And American judges would not be able to have that evidence submitted in court as valid evidence, especially in a trial with a jury. But this is used as fair evidence here. And I also think that in an American court, and I'm just speculating because I didn't study law, but I would imagine that there would first be an autopsy as well as detectives who would try to find forensic evidence before they charge this woman as a suspect. But then again, I'm not saying that Anatomy of a Fall as a courtroom drama is re- uh, unrealistic. It probably is realistic. But I'm just noting what probably would not hold up as evidence in an American co- court compared to what's holding up as evidence in a French court. And another thing I found interesting in Anatomy of a Fall was that there are times where Sandra Huller speaks French and English. And there are times where she's in court and there is a judge or a a lawyer who asks her a question in French and she replies to them in English. And they apparently understand because they ask her another question in French and she replies in English. And I've seen this done in a lot of Indian movies, particularly movies like Monsoon Wedding. And it's understandable in those kinds of movies because India used to be a British colony. And there are a number of Indian people in that country who speak fluent English in addition to whatever Indian language they speak in their region. But in this movie, I don't know, that just didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But I'm not knocking the film because obviously it is a compelling courtroom drama, even though there are some cultural misunderstandings here and there. But I just thought it was an interesting observation. And also, there is a key point in this movie where Sandra Voiter's son, Daniel, or Daniel, who's played by Milo Makado Grainer, is actually forced to testify in court. Now, in America, the, the testifying of children is usually at the discretion of the children themselves, or the judge just wouldn't allow it. And I feel like in this kind of case, the judge wouldn't allow it based on the fact that what is a child's testimony going to tell you about whether or not the woman allegedly murdered her husband? And especially considering that Danielle has vision problems and he wasn't there, he's not going to tell you a lot. But again, I'm not faulting this film. I do think that a legal expert in America could probably pick this part pick this movie apart better than I could. In fact, there's one YouTube channel that I like to watch. It's called Legal Eagle. And the host of Legal Eagle is a practicing attorney who actually not only tells you about current events, especially since we have a former president who's been on trial for a while and probably will be for even longer, but he also takes popular films ranging from My Cousin Vinny to Liar Liar to A Time to Kill, movies that have courts in them, and he says what's accurate about the film and what isn't accurate. And My Cousin Vinny actually had a lot of legally accurate scenes in them. I would love to see the Legal Eagle guy on YouTube take on the movie Anatomy of a Fall. It is a very intriguing movie, and Anatomy of a Fall gets my rating of a knockout. It deserved its Best Picture nomination, and it is actually very surprising it was not nominated for Best International Feature, although The Zone of Interest, which was also nominated for Best Picture, is. But ironically enough, Anatomy of a Fall has already been chosen for the Criterion Collection, and its Blu-ray and 4K release will be put out there by the Criterion Collection in May. 
The zone of interest hasn't gotten that Criterion Collection released yet. I feel like it should. Now, Anatomy of a Fall, is it one of my favorite films of the year? No, but I do give it credit for being a great film. And I also credit it for Sandra Huller's amazing performance in this film. Although I do think her performance in the zone of interest was better. But Anatomy of a Fall is definitely a capable and sturdy film. And it's a film that even if you may not agree or be puzzled by the French court system, and as well as the main character in this film being tried for murder the way she is, you can definitely appreciate it. And it is a film that will make you think. It's also very compelling drama. spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Scrambled. And this is a film that premiered at the South by Southwest Festival on March 11th, 2023, but was not released into theaters until February 2nd, 2024. And because it is as small a film as it is with a micro budget of about $1 million, it probably didn't stay in theaters for very long. However, when it gets released on streaming, I highly recommend that you see it because this is a film that a lot of millennials and yeah, even some Gen Z people would probably relate to in an instant. The movie is about a 34-year-old woman who is an eternal bridesmaid. Her name is Nellie Robinson and she's played by Leah McKendrick who goes on an empowering and often hilarious journey of self-discovery. Specifically, at 34 years old, she makes the decision to freeze her eggs. And she does this because she's a single woman who is in her 30s. She's not married, and she knows she doesn't want to have kids now. But she is thinking as the film progresses, and especially as a lot of friends of hers are getting married and having children themselves, what if I want children in five years and ultimately it's too late. And this is a dilemma that I can't exactly relate to because I'm a guy, but I can certainly relate to being in my 30s and in my case, my 40s, not having a family and coming from a family where when I was born, my mom was 26 and my dad was 29. But nowadays when young adults have families in their 20s, it's a bit more unusual, and a lot of people are waiting, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the downside is, for women in their 30s, unfortunately, it might be too late. Now, there are some women who do get pregnant in their 40s. Some of them get pregnant by accident. Some of them just have one night where they purposefully want to get pregnant, and they ultimately do. And then other people really have to work at it. They have to have hormonal therapy and maybe some surrogacy. And it is a very arduous process. And Leah McKendrick has uh, her character, Nellie Robinson, and actually Leah McKendrick herself, because this is actually based on her own experience freezing her eggs, is wondering, what if I want children later? What if it's too late for me? And as I was watching the film... I began to feel my heart feel very heavy because this is a very valid and difficult choice that a person has to make, but most especially a woman. Now, for a guy, it's not as hard because when where we could still donate sperm to whomever. And if we really want kids, chances are, unless we're sterile, we can have kids if we want to depending on the partner. But with women, there's a biological clock and it's ticking. And it's one of the ways in which life is legitimately unfair. And Leah McKendrick's character has this dilemma in her. And she also, especially since she lives in Los Angeles and has these other acquaintances, 
she is beginning to have her joy killed by way of comparison with the baby showers and the wedding parties and, of course, her being always a bridesmaid and never a bride. And it seems like in her world, everyone is having a great time except her. Everyone is succeeding in their life and career except her. And everybody is happy except her. And this is not the first film that deals with this kind of comparison and how it can make you your own worst enemy. But it is definitely one of the more poignant and more realistic films regarding this kind of procedure, this kind of crisis that you would have and maybe not when you reach midlife. And not only did Leia McKendrick star in this film, she also wrote the story and the screenplay and also makes her directorial debut in this film. And there are a number of other supporting actors in this film who also do really well. For example, there is Ego Nuotum from Saturday Night Live, who plays her best friend Sheila, who is getting married in the beginning of the film and having a bit of a panic attack herself because she's realizing she's only going to sleep with one man, if she's morally correct, which we presume she is, for the rest of her life, and that is a lot to take in. I love Ego Nuotum on Saturday Night Live, and she's very good in this film, and I hope she doesn't just disappear like most other SNL alum do. But she and Leia McKendrick, I don't know if they're actually friends in real life, but in this film, they made me believe that she was. There's also a very brief performance here by June Diane Raphael, who plays a guest at the wedding named Monroe, who's a woman who is in her 40s and just gave birth to her first child. And she's also in bliss because she gave birth to a child, but she's also agonizing over the thousands of dollars she spent on hormone, on hormone therapy and other medical treatments to get her to have a child of her own. A lot of people should consider adoption, honestly, but there is that idea of you passing your genes down from generation to generation. I don't exactly know, but I felt like the dilemma that Leah McKendrick's character Nellie Robbins had in this film just ached of reality. And also some of the other one night stands that she had with a variety of guys, some who are bad decisions from the get go. Others like the nice guy who don't seem to be a bad choice, but ultimately reveal themselves as entitled and whiny and that will certainly ring true to thousands, if not millions, of women, especially considering that there are more people in their 30s who are single than there are married. That's just the way of the world right now. But Scrambled hits on a lot of very poignant notes here, and Scrambled gets my rating of a knockout. And this is a film that I think will eventually come back in a big way a little later, Leah McKendrick is an actress I've seen here and there in, in films, but I haven't actually recognized her by her face, at least not especially. And she does bear a resemblance to Shailene Woodley in a sense. The only dead ringer that she's not Shailene Woodley is her red hair. But she is very talented. She's obviously proven herself to be a great actress. And she's also an amazing writer. And I can't wait to see what she does next. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time, but I do have some time to do my final segment, which is What's Coming Up Next, which is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters on February 23rd, 2024. Fortunately for me, there aren't a ton of movies that are coming out, but there are some significant ones. For example, the biggest film to come out on February 23rd is a film that's called Drive Away Dolls. And this is a film that is directed by Ethan Cohen. 
not Joel and Ethan Cohen, but Ethan Cohen, Cohen himself. And why Ethan Cohen decided to direct this film himself and not bring Joel in on it, I don't exactly know. But Drive Away Dolls is a film about a woman by the name of Jamie who regrets her breakup with her girlfriend while Marion needs to relax. I presume that Jamie and Marion are girlfriend to girlfriend. So Jamie is played by Margaret Qualley and Marion is played by Geraldine Viswanathan. Uh, forgiveness for me mispronouncing that name. But anyway, in search of a fresh start, they embark on an unexpected road trip to Tallahassee, Florida. Things quickly go awry when they cross paths with a group of inept criminals. So in addition to Margaret Qualley and Geraldine Viswanathan, the movie also stars Beanie Feldstein, whom I love, Joey Slotnick, who I've seen in a number of things, C.J. Wilson, Academy Award nominee Coleman Domingo, Pedro Pascal, Bill Camp, and Matt Damon. So this movie already has a terrific cast, besides the two leads who, honestly, I don't know very well. But this could be their breakout movie. I'm not saying that it's going to be great, but it's a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters, although I don't know if this is going to be released in a theater near me, is an animated film that's an anime, and it's called Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, or To the Hashira Training, which kind of sounds like it's either a sequel or it is a continuation of an anime series. And by an anime series, I mean a TV series. But it's about somebody named Tanjiro who undergoes rigorous training with the stone Hashira Hamijima in his quest to become a Hashira. Meanwhile, Muzan continues the search for Nezuko and Ubu Yashiki. So I can tell you right off the bat, this is a movie that I won't see because it is obviously a sequel. I don't know Tanjiro from Muzan. And it's unlikely that I'm going to go out of my way to make it known. But it's a movie that I won't see. But if you want to see it, it's, it's subject to being released in theaters on February 23rd, 2024. So if you are into Demon Slayer, which I presume is a franchise, then have a great time with the movies. That's all I have to say. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.